Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good? Yeah? Yeah, okay. I'll take that. That's excitement. There we go. Welcome. Awesome. Uh, we've got a great guest lined up for you that we're going to start in just one second. So without any further ado, please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome this evening's guest moderator, Donna Freegan of USA Today, and tonight's guest author, Jennifer Weiner. Thanks for coming. Did you all get whoopie pies? Not yet? Not yet? Well, hello. <laughs> don't, don't hold back, Matt. It's not how we work. So Jennifer's going to read a little bit from her book. I'm just going to read a few pages, and then I thought we could um, just ask questions, because that's always the most fun part for me. So here we go. Fly away home. Breakfast in five-star hotels was always the same. This was what Sylvie Surfer Woodruff thought as the elevator descended from the sixth floor and opened into the gleaming expanse of the lobby of the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. After 32 years of marriage, 14 of them as the wife to the senior senator from New York, after visits to six continents and some of the major cities in the world, perhaps she should have been able to come up with something more profound about human nature and common ground and the ties that bind us all, but there it was, her very own insight. Maybe it wasn't much, but it wasn't nothing. If pressed, Sylvie also had some very profound and trenchant observations to make about executive airport lounges. She took a deep breath, uncomfortably aware of the way the waistband of her skirt dug into her midriff. Then she slipped her hand into her husband's and walked beside him, past the reception desk toward the restaurant, thinking it was a good thing, a reassuring thing, that no matter where you were in the world, London or Los Angeles or Dubai, if you were in a good hotel, or Four Seasons, or a Ritz-Carlton, and these days when she and Richard traveled, they were almost always in a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton, your breakfast would never surprise you. There would be menus offered today by a girl in a trim black suit who stood behind a podium in the plushly carpeted entryway, beaming at the patrons as if their arrival represented the very pinnacle of her day and possibly of her lifetime. Richard would wave the menus away. We'll do the buffet, he'd announce, without asking whether there was one. There always was. Of course, sir, their waiter or the maitre d' or today's black-suited girl would murmur in approval. They'd be led through a richly appointed room past the heavy silk drapes, elaborately tasseled and tied, past mahogany sideboards and expensively dressed diners murmuring over their coffee. Richard would deposit his briefcase and his newspapers at their table, and then they'd proceed to the buffet. There'd be an assortment of fresh fruit, slices of melon, peeled segments of grapefruit and orange, and sliced kiwis arranged like jewels on white china platters. There were always croissants, chocolate and plain, always muffins, bran and blueberry and corn, always bagels, yes, even in Dubai. Always shot glasses layered with yogurt and muesli, slices of bread and English muffins arrayed next to a toaster, and chafing dishes of scrambled eggs and bacon and sausage and breakfast potatoes, and there was always a chef in a toque and a white coat and a white jacket making omelets. Richard would ask for an omelet, spinach as a nod to health, and mushrooms and cheddar cheese. He liked onions, but couldn't risk a day of bad breath. Once the order was placed, he'd hand off his plate to Sylvie and return to their table, to his New York Times and his Wall Street Journal and the eternal consolation of his Blackberry, and Sylvie would wait for his food. The first time her mother, the Honorable Selma Surfer, had seen Sylvie perform this maneuver, she'd stared at her daughter with her mouth open and a dot of crimson kiss lipstick staining her incisor. Seriously, she'd asked in her grating Brooklyn accent. Sylvie had tried to shush her. Selma, as always, had refused to be shushed. Seriously, Sylvie, this is what you do? You fetch his eggs? He's busy, Sylvie murmured, shifting the plate to her right hand and tucking a lock of hair behind her ear with her left. I don't mind. 
She knew what her mother was thinking. Without the Honorable Selma, first in her class and one of seven women at Yale Law, former chief judge of the state of New York, having to say a word. Sylvie should mind, and Sylvie should be busy too. Like her mother, Sylvie had gone to Barnard and Yale. Sylvie was meant to have followed in Selma's footsteps straight up to the Supreme Court at the very, or at the very least, practiced law for more than two years. Selma and David Surfer's only child had been intended for better things than marriage, motherhood, committee work for various charities, and collecting her husband's breakfast. Oh well, she thought, as the chef's swirled melted butter in a pan. She was happy with her life, even if it didn't please her mother. She loved her husband. She respected what he'd accomplished. She felt good about the part that she'd played in his career. Besides, she knew it could be worse. In cities all over the world, women went hungry, were beaten or abused. Women watched their children suffer. Sylvie had seen them, had touched their hands, bounced their babies on her lap. It seemed churlish to complain about the occasional small indignity. About the hours she'd spent campaigning, faith smoothed into a pleasant expression, mouth set in a smile, hair straightened into an inoffensive shoulder-length bob, wearing hose that squeezed her middle and pumps that pinched her toes, standing behind her husband, saying nothing. So that's a little taste of Fly Away Home, available as an ebook and a trade paperback. <laughs> so Donna, let's dish. Let's dish. Let's dish. Come closer, you guys in the back. I, I feel like we need to sort of set up a... It's a, the back of the class syndrome, It's the right? back of the class syndrome, yeah. but, but people are being noisy. They're talking to those geniuses out there, and I, I'm threatened. So please come close. So Thank who's, you. Let's, let's start with the very obvious. Who's Sylvie based on? <laughs> well, I, I first of all would like to state for the record that this was all conceived and written before The Good Wife, okay? Points. Um, but, but basically, I watched Elliot Spitzer's press conference. I... Um, but before that, I watched Jim McGreevy's press conference. There, about 18 months ago, there were a lot of press conferences. Like every week, there was some politician having a press conference, you know, sort of confessing to something stupid, and their wives were always there. And I, I think between Dina McGreevy and Selma, not Selma, um, Silda Spitzer, Spitzer yep. just the idea of these women in their suits, in their heels, on these podiums, looking shell-shocked, as their husbands confess to either being a gay American, in McGreevy's case, or to blowing thousands of dollars on, on hookers. And in both cases, these were educated women, um, not young women, you know, women who had had careers, had lives, had children, you know, marriages of relatively long standing. And I just could not make sense of it. Why would you be there? with this guy. Why wouldn't you say, the hell with you? Go have your own press conference, you know? Like, like mama's going to the islands. I, I just did not get it. And I wanted to write a book sort of answering the question just in my own head, okay, who are the women who marry these guys? What kind of lives do they have? What kind of choices do they make? What are the trade-offs? And what happens in the wake of this, the, the, the magnitude of this betrayal? is basically the question. So a little bit, little bit of Silda, a little bit of Dina, a little bit of my imagination. So, no Juliana Margulies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's what happens after the press conference. Exactly. Like when they're walking back to the green room or... I mean, I'm just... You know. I, I honestly imagine the conversation in the town car going home and like I, you know, look up awkward in Wikipedia and like there's Elliot and Silda. Like, so <laughs> that went well. Thanks for wearing that Hermes scarf. I that was know, that looked fabulous. I know. And then there, there's the whole other question of like, do you want to be the designer whose shoes get worn? It's like, yeah, 
Uh, well, kind of. It did air live on every network. It did. It did. It did. But, you know, it's like I, I watch a lot of reality TV, for those of you who don't know me. And yes, right. And I'm always like, I follow this, this woman, Possessionista, on Twitter, who's always like, you know, get the bachelorette's shoes. Get the, you know, this one's heels. And, and, and I'm, I'm just waiting for, like, the press conference of, like, you know, get the disgraced wife's handbag, you know, 20% off at Ideally. <laughs> When Teen Mom 3 was arrested for pot possession, right. this is the shirt that she wore. But you know what? People are, I'm sure, sales go up. Oh, I'm sure. Don't you think? It's, right? It's, it's, the way, it's the way we are. What's your writing process? <laughs> I love the process question because it reminds me of James Lipton. You know, like, do you guys watch Inside the Actor's Studio? And James Lipton always is like, what? Tell us about your process. And he's always the same degree of serious, whether it's like Meryl Streep or like a Jonas like, he's always just like, what is your process? I mean, I have kids, so my, my process is a little fatutzed. Um, but, but basically, um, normally I write, um, I have help. I have lots of help, and my help comes at 11. So in the mornings, I'm with my three-year-old. I have a daughter who's almost eight. She goes to school. That's awesome, and I recommend it. Um, yeah. So you're not, you're not against educating your children? No, I'm, I'm pro. Okay. I'm, I'm anti-homeschool. I mean, not, not for everybody. Like, there's people who can do it, but, like, I'm like, go, go, go. Just out the door. Hurry, hurry, go, go. Bus is coming, bus is coming, go. Um, so the three-year-old, she's in nursery school three days a week, so either I take her to school and then I go to the gym or, like, we do, like, tumbling class or some, some sort of enrichment because you can really never enrich your three-year-old enough. Um, and then at 11, my, my sitter comes, and I'm just like, here you go, here you go. Baby, baby, here, here. And um, then I take a shower, which everyone appreciates. And then I usually go to a coffee shop and I, I write from like one to four or like one to five and sometimes one to six if there's a lot of good gossip on the internet, if it's the day the tabloids come out, if it's Wednesday. <laughs> um, and then so that that's, you know, I sit in a coffee shop and I, I think at the coffee shop they believe I'm the saddest grad student ever. Um, I don't believe they've figured that I'm a writer and I've been going there for 10 years and I think, they're, I think they talk about me when they're closing. They're like, oh my God, like, is she ever going to get her thesis done? It's so sad. She's, Someone she's just this woman, a tutor. I, well, one time, one time they gave me free coffee. They, like, I, see, I went to I pay. No, you're not going to Starbucks. No, no, no. <laughs> I I, no, I'm, I'm not. I went to pay for my latte and they're like, oh, don't worry, it's on us. I'm so excited. I call my best friend and I'm like, they gave me free coffee. Oh my God, I think they know I'm an author. And she's like, maybe they just think you're homeless. <laughs> and I'm like, shit. Yeah, that's probably it. So um, kids in the morning, right in the afternoon, and then I go home and like dinner, bath, bed, stories, reality TV, please go to sleep, mommy's watching The Bachelor. Um, yeah. But now I'm in LA doing a TV show, and so I have one kid with me. Kid one is with me, kid two is in Philadelphia, um, just for like the, the next six weeks till we finish up the show. So, But now I'm like working like nine to six. I don't like it. I'm like, I'm like, when is nap time? You know, there's a, there's a couch in my office, and I'm like, oh, that must be for naps. When is nap time? But there's no nap time. It's very unfortunate. There is lunch, but everybody's writing their own screenplays at lunch, I've discovered. I'm like, you guys, write novels. It's better. <laughs> That's my process. I love how, uh, how you de-romanticize. Uh, de That's not even a word, but... Uh -huh. um, writing I was reading on Jennifer has the best website ever and there's a section on there tips for writers mm -hmm. and I love your section on writer's block uh -huh. or the the lack thereof in your life well it's like I mean I was a journalist and as 
as you know, as a journalist, you can't really go to your editor and be like, I know I promised you 18 inches on the sewage board hearing. But my muse has not arrived. But my muse has not spoken to me, so um, sorry. Like, that's what's called an unemployed journalist. And and, and it's the same with being a mom, as you have now learned. Donna just had a baby. So, right, yay. But, like, I mean, you're going to be, like, writing on your laptop in the carpool lane because that's when you've got 15 Mm -hmm. minutes. And I get so frustrated when I read about certain, like, big deal male literary writers, Jonathan Franzen, who will go unnamed. And and he's like... He spends eight years writing a book. Okay, but he also, he has a special, like, office outside of his house with, like, opaque windows and a pink noise machine? Really? And his his computer doesn't... uh, Doesn't connect to the internet. I mean, I'm sorry. If I can't get to Us Weekly in, like, ten seconds, I I get shaky. I get a little... I'm not going to lie. I get a little anxious. I mean, if you did not know what Mariah named her twins, where would you be right now? Moroccan and Monroe. And it took me a second to figure out which one was which. Moroccan's a problem. Monroe I really like. I would do that, I think. But why Moroccan? I don't know. And they're just going to call him Mo. He's going to sound like an old Jewish man. No, it's a she. No, Moroccan's the boy. Monroe is the girl. Moroccan's the boy. Monroe is after Marilyn. Oh. You didn't read Us Weekly closely enough. Uh. I glanced. Am I right, though? I'm, yeah. Monroe yes. is the girl. Right. Perhaps she important. was competing with Alicia Keys, who named her son Egypt. Have I'm, you thought about that? I have not. But, you know, Brandy named her daughter Soraya. So, like, maybe there's something in there, too. Yes. Like, like Syria, Morocco. I don't know. My kids are Lucy and Phoebe. So I, <laughs> I, I have a little Mine envy. Alex. Right. So, yeah. You know, don't, don't you, like, part of you is, I, I think, like, 99% of me is, like, Apple. Ugh. And then 1% is like, hmm, Apple. It's kind of cute. And then the 99% kicks in and is like, no. Also, I don't trust that Gwyneth Paltrow wrote a cookbook. I'm sorry. She's too, she's like, I just, I can't imagine her with sauce or butter on her anywhere. I don't, I don't trust that. She, I, has, she has a pizza oven in her backyard. Right, you. I know she does, but I think it's for doesn't everyone have burning that? people she doesn't like. I don't believe she's <laughs> making pizza in there. I just, I don't trust her. I'm sorry. It's a thing. I do, I do have to say, I do love the tips that she gives. For example, when mm-hmm. I go to Nora Ephron's house for dinner, right, I also like to mimic her table settings. Well, why wouldn't, and why wouldn't you? And I call Uncle Steve. Right. You know, when, when Spielberg. You, when, when you need I, advice. Yes. Right. So, no, I, I know. I, I, I think... I think she doesn't understand that she's living on a different plane than the rest of us, which, which is why she feels comfortable giving that kind of advice. You know, like when Michael Stipe comes for dinner, don't serve duck. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the biggest, um, I guess, issue with it that stops people from writing? Is it, is it fear? Is it the... the it's the, me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no competition. No, um... You know, that, that's a really good question because I, you know, you, I'm sure, have encountered this. Like, you go to a party or you go to a thing and your people ask, what do you do? And you're like, I write. And they're like, oh, my God, I have a book. Yeah. I've got a, I could, I, I have an idea for an article. I could write for newspapers. And, and, and isn't part of you like, what do you do? Uh, yeah. yeah, well, I could do that. I, oh, my God, I got so angry. This, this reporter who covers the Supreme Court announced online her intention to, quote, write a chiclet novel during her maternity leave. And, and I wrote on Twitter that I would be covering the Supreme Court during my lunch hour. I, it's really? But a lot of people do have stories. And I, I think the thing is just the, the sheer perseverance and persistence and cussedness to make yourself sit your butt down and write the thing. 
And I, I feel like the people who actually do end up writers sort of don't have a choice. Like, you're, you're compelled to do it. Like, you just sort of, you have to get it out of you. It's like an exorcism almost. But for people who want to write, I, I think you just have to start. I think you just have to, like, put yourself in the chair in front of the computer, get some free time. If you're a mom, get somebody else to watch the kids because it's just not going to happen if they're there. Um, and close the door and find some time to do it. How do you make your dialogue sound like real people actually spoke it? Do you take notes when you hear people talk? No, or do I just, you just I pay attention. I, I, was a, I was a very nerdy kid, um, so I was always listening to people and trying to figure out, like, okay, I know I'm not very successful talking to my peers, so maybe if I listen and, like, try to try to pay attention, like, I could, I could, like, crack the code of, like, normal interaction. I don't think it worked, but I can do good dialogue now. <laughs> well, and in terms of Chicklet, which you just brought up... Yes. Um, I personally don't understand why John Grish John Grisham, for example, is not, you know, Dicklet, for I know. example. I know. So I know. What, what do you make of this whole kind oh, of like chicklet branding ghetto yes. situation? Well, here's the thing. I, I think that there is popular entertainment for men which has some critical esteem. Like John Grisham gets reviewed in the New York Times book review. Like I think I mean, people are aware that he's not Faulkner, mm -hmm. but they also know that there's something there's some skill there, there's some effort there, there's something that's worthy of some respect there. Whereas women who write popular fiction for women get none of that. We don't get any, there, there's no sense that it takes work. There's no sense that we're part of a literary tradition. There's no coverage. And, and I think it's a double standard. I really do. I mean, I, I think the idea that men telling stories about men being automatically more worthy about than women telling stories about women is, is it's the S word, it's, it's sexism. And the thing that bothers me most is other women writers, like a certain Pulitzer Prize winner who won the Pulitzer Prize and, and somebody said, what is your advice for young women writers? And she basically said, don't write banal derivative stuff like Chicklet. And, and I was like, do you not understand that the same system that, that keeps literary women writers on the style page as opposed to the magazine mm -hmm is the same thing that keeps Chicklet sort of under everybody's heel, like we're the goat of everything, like, you know, sort of walking through the corridors of the literary establishment with kick me signs on our back. Like, do you not get that that's all of a piece? And I don't think she does. No, well. She's another one with a white, with a pink noise machine and the things taped over the walls. And coffee with just the right amount of cream. You know, exactly, to, to, to exactly. The All these people in Brooklyn, it, it's like, oh. I think I shouldn't go there. Do you live in Brooklyn? No, no, no. See, so you're okay. No. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> um, talk, can you talk a little bit about, um, I don't know if you guys saw, uh, Jennifer's book in her shoes was adapted into a fantastic, fantastic movie. Remind in, me like five, back in the six day, years ago? 2005. Yes, oh God, I feel so old. I know, yeah. don't you? It's like I'm decrepit. Ugh. What was that process like for you and would you do it again? Um, it was amazing and it was surreal and it was... Um, Seeing a book you wrote on the big screen, the only thing I can compare it to is like when I saw um, Inception, like somebody sort of sneaking into your dreams and taking them and putting them somewhere, like without the whole like bendy Paris video game thing. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, I, I was so pleased with the movie. I loved the script. I thought the director did a fantastic job. I thought it was really well cast. I loved that they shot it in Philadelphia instead of like going to Vancouver with a styrofoam Liberty Bell, which I'm sure you know is what a lot of filmmakers do. It's cheaper to shoot up there. I loved that they kept the Jewish aspect of it, which I figured was gonzo. I loved that they kept the older people in Florida aspect of it, which I also, like honestly, 
when you when you sell the rights to your book, like you just have to be prepared for them to do anything, for anything to happen. And I was really prepared for it to be like, okay, instead of two sisters, it's cousins and they're strippers in Vegas and they're on a road trip. And I would have been like, all right, you know, you, you, you keep in the title? Huh? But I, I, I was really, really happy. And honestly, because I had such a great experience, I am a little scared of going through it again because then it's like I've been on panels with authors who have not had such great experiences and and I know that you have to spend a lot of your career sort of like apologizing like you you will say things like well that wasn't exactly my vision or well that wasn't exactly what I had in mind for it or yeah I don't really know what happened there so if it happens again you know I will just sort of let go and let God because that's the the other thing I I told myself like I told the story I wanted to tell in the book. It's their story to tell now. And um, if, it's, if it's a great movie, fantastic. And if it's not a great movie, it'll still bring more people to the book. So, all good. All good. And the TV show? Yes. Um, I'm writing a TV show called State of Georgia, starring Raven Simone, woot woot, and um, this fantastic actress from... Um, she was from Roswell named Mahandra Delfino, who's gorgeous, who I never knew about, but she's so talented and so beautiful. And Loretta Devine, who's hilarious. And it's about two best friends from a small town down south who move to New York City and try to make it. And um, Raven's character wants to be an actress, and she's sort of larger than life and very confident and exuberant. And Mahandra's character is a physicist, and she's in grad school at Columbia, which we're not allowed to call Columbia. So I think it's like... University, University of, of New York, yeah. <laughs> University of New York or something like that. And she's sort of um, socially challenged in ways that feel very familiar to me. So it's kind of Laverne and Shirley-ish. Um, it's a little bit of that girl, Marlo Thomas in the city. And, and I'm, having a real, I'm having a lot of fun writing television scripts. There's something very um, rewarding about you write something and then um, your cast comes in and reads it on Wednesday and they rehearse it for the studio on Thursday and for the network on Friday, and they do camera blocking and pre-shoots on Monday, and on Tuesday night, you get a studio audience in about this size, and you have your sets, and you have your cameras, and you put on a show. It's almost like instant gratification. It is instant gratification. And, and I, also you can see when something's not working. You can see when something's not working, and you can run right in with another mm -hmm. joke to fix it, which is great. It's the thing that every novelist wishes she could do. Like when you're reading something, oh my God, I should have fixed that. That could have been funnier. I should have said this. When you're filming TV, you can just go in and, and, and do it. And luckily, your actresses are quick enough to sort of pick up the new lines and, and get it. And, um, and, and it's, it's fun. And I'm honestly, it's going to be on ABC Family June 29th. And I was, you know, their audience is sort of teenage girls, tween girls, like 11, 12, 13, which to me is like exactly who I want to be talking to. So it's those girls and their moms. And I was completely convinced that like, we're never going to be able to make sex jokes. We're never going to be able to show them drinking. Like it's just going to be because it's ABC family, but ABC family has the same standards and practices as ABC. So which we've lost. E right. So, yeah. Exactly. So we've, we've been able to get in a lot of pretty, not, not racy, but I'd say like the girls are actual like 20 somethings in New York where like they drink, they flirt, there's guys, there's, there's problems. No pregnancy scares yet, but you know, that's season two. So before we turn this over to the audience, mm -hmm. who is one writer living or dead that you'd want to have dinner with or get drunk with or both? Oh my gosh, one writer living or dead. 
probably Stephen King. I really love him. But you wouldn't get drunk with him, obviously. No, I wouldn't that get drunk with him. Bad. No, he yeah. scares me a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, I love him and I admire him and I've read everything he's written, but if, if we got drunk, I don't know what I'd do. I mean, well, honestly, like, I just, I get so tongue-tied around authors that I admire. I met Jeffrey Eugenides once. Oh, my God. Okay, this, some, this is yeah. a funny story. Jeffrey Eugenides wrote Middlesex. Do you guys, anybody? And okay. The Virgin Suicides. And The Virgin fantastic, Suicides, fantastic which is books. amazing, yeah. amazing movie. Mm -hmm. But Middlesex is about a child who was born with the sexual characteristics of both men and women. And basically what happens is there's an old pediatrician, this old Greek family pediatrician who misses it. Mm -hmm. And so this kid grows up thinking that he is a girl when in fact he is something else. Yeah. And so I, I meet Jeffrey Eugenides, who's this like very tall, shy, quiet guy. And I'm like, I just, I loved his book so much and I really wanted to say something to him, but like, of course I get all tongue tied. So I decide that like a couple glasses of wine will help the situation. So I have a couple glasses of wine and I finally make my way over to him at this party and I say, you're Jeffrey Eugenides. And he says, mm-hmm. And I'm like, I loved your book so much. And he says, mm-hmm. And I'm like, but I have to tell you, when my daughter was born, I made my doctor look really, really closely because oh I didn't want to be the mom who missed the penis. And he stared at me with this like horrified look on his face. And I was like, I have to go. So yeah, that wasn't so good. That's, that's it's very funny. True story. True story. I do have to say that when I interview actors and they're mean, I don't care. But when I interview writers and they're mean, I it know. like just it just he cuts me. Mean. No, he wasn't. He, he but was I interviewed scared. I interviewed a favorite writer of mine once who was horrible. You have to tell me who. Later. Later. But I mean, like, <laughs> like so nasty. Ah, I hate, and, like, and I was just nasty? like, why? You get like, to you make know? stuff up for a living. What's and to I be nasty your book about? So much and I, you know, I've read all of them, and you oh, know I've read all of them. Like, know. why? I hate that. I hate that. I hate when they're bad people. Sometimes they are. Yeah. It's, and it's, you'd never guess it from the books. So. Oh, no. Anyway. All right. Who questions? wants to know something? Books? Yes, uh, we do have a microphone. Oh, they have a so microphone. Raise your hand, I and I'll bring it to you. those. First question down here in the front. Um, hi. Hello. Um, just curious, when you've been writing a book, have you ever had a character that you thought was going to be one thing and then he or she like, stopped talking to you? was like, that's not who I am. And what do you do in um, that case? Yes. Um, when the characters start talking to you and want to become somebody else, I, I had a character do that in the book that's coming out in July, which is called Then Came You, and it's about a surrogate pregnancy. And I, I had this, this woman in her 40s and lying about it who can't get pregnant and wants to because she's married to a rich guy and she wants to be sure that she will inherit if he kicks it. And I wanted her to be awful. Like, I wanted her to be sort of shallow and vain and materialistic and unkind and just the last person in the world who should ever, ever, ever have a baby. Um, but as I started telling the story, I was like, okay, why is she this way? Like, what happened to her? What, what made her so terrible? Because, like, everybody's got a story, right? And so I'm thinking of, like, you know, and, and eventually she wound up becoming probably, like, the most sympathetic character in the whole thing because I had to, you know, give her this whole backstory of what had happened to, to make her this way. And, you know, on the one hand, it was very satisfying because it's like, okay, now I understand her. Now I get it. But on the other hand, it was like, well, I thought I was going to get a villain. I thought I was going to get to write, like, a bitch, you know? Like, this is no fun. Because it's, it's, it's easier to write someone who's one-dimensional like know. that. But, but fun sometimes, you know? I did have a good time with Sidel in In Her Shoes, who was um, based on my Aunt Marlene, who maybe she has a backstory, but I don't know. She's just horrible. So, <laughs> Wait, this is going to be a podcast, you said? <laughs> 
Aunt Marlene doesn't have internet Aunt access Marlene's because not on the internet because she disconnected her computer so her music She's wouldn't got get a interference. <laughs> oh. Who else wants to know something? Uh, we have a question in the second row here. Would you ever continue the story with Candace Joy? Um, okay, so I wrote Good in Bed. That was my first book. And then Certain Girls was the follow-up. And I do think that someday I would like to catch up with Candy when she is like sort of a senior citizen dating, you know, like the menopause years kind of thing. But yeah, no, I, I do want to know what happens to those people. So I think eventually I will come back to them again. Yes. Uh, next question in the front. Uh, we're huge fans, by the way. So uh, thanks for all of your books. But oh, you're welcome. We have a question. Our, yes. our favorite book, this is my sister and I, is um, Certain Girls. Uh-huh. And one of the most, she read it before uh-huh. I did, uh-huh. texted me and said, O-M-F-G. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, I just, think I know what you're going to ask. So yeah. let's, not, let's do it without the spoiler. I know. Right? I said, I said, My don't. mother did the same thing. She called me. I gave her a... Um, my, my family reads all my books in galley because if they have problems or, or, or feel um, like I'm ripping them off too much, my mom calls me and she's like, why did you do this? That was my question. Somebody <laughs> dies in the book and my mother was not happy. And I'm like, I, the, I mean, my, my joke answer was this character was too good to live. I mean, this character was so perfect in every way that it was, it was sort of like he, he was an alien sort of from some other planet where, where the men behave themselves. Um, but honestly, the, the real answer is I knew from the first word I wrote of that book that that was how it was going to end. And the only reason I can think that I knew it was going to end that way was because I think that for Canny, her story and her journey is always going to be about sort of facing down the worst thing and somehow finding joy within it. And so that's why that happened. And I, I wasn't happy about it either. I mean, honestly, sometimes, I know, right? Sometimes things happen that surprise you. And that was just, that was, that was one of them. Which of your characters is the most autobiographical? Which of my characters is the most autobiographical? I mean, I, you know, there's, there's some of me in all of them. There's a little ooter in all of us, as they say on The Simpsons. Um, I mean, Canny was probably the closest when I started writing. Like, I was 28, and this jerk had just dumped me, and my mom had come out of the closet, and I was just sort of dealing with all of that. So that was very close. But I, there, there's... I mean, there's, there's some of me in all of them. Like, even the bad ones, there really is. Because I think as an author, you're, you're always struggling to find why do people do the things they do? You know, you're sort of like pulling them apart, looking for their secrets, investigating their histories, and trying to figure out like what makes someone the way that she is. And so I think there ha- you have to have a little bit of yourself in all of them. That is what I think. That sounded almost smart. Wow, where's my editor? Is she listening to this? Are you listening to this? Are you impressed? Are you lying? <laughs> uh, liar. <laughs> Who else wants to know something? Next to my editor. Lady next to my editor. Hi. Um, Hello. I'll be 25 on Friday. Good um, God. I've been reading oh your God, books I, since I, I was... I could have given birth to her. <laughs> <laughs> I was on Teen Mom. I've been reading your books since I was about, I don't know, 17. Yeah, when okay, your first I don't feel old at all now. Thank you. Um, my mom reads all of your books, and I just want to know how you managed to relate to such a wide range age of women. I, oh, I've always I've loved your books since I was 17 years old. I'm sure I'll be reading them till your last one. So oh, how do you manage to kind you. of attract a... <laughs> Did you hear Hopefully that? Hopefully there won't be a last See? one. But. Lifetime reader. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, like, I, I think it goes back to being like a nerdy kid. 
I, I think if you're not fitting in with people, you spend inordinate amounts of time alone in your room with the Smiths playing. You're too young to know them, but they're on iTunes. And um, you just try to make sense of it all. And I think that, you know, unhappy adolescences yield perhaps a more nuanced understanding of how people are. You know, but I, I also, I mean, you have to think a lot about it. Like when I was writing Fly Away Home and I was writing in Sylvie's voice, and Sylvie is in her late 50s and is very reserved, very proper. And so my own voice tends to be a little more slangy and profane and kind of, you know, LOL, OMG, BTW kind of stuff. And so I had to really check myself to be like, okay, is this me or is this her? Like, how, I know how I sound. How does she sound? And so it's, you know, I have good editors. I have great first readers. Um, I have good friends who read my books ahead of time and, and sort of offer suggestions. But thank you so much. That's a really nice compliment because, um, you know, I, I think that's something I always try to push myself on is sort of, you know, there, there's always a me-ish character in the books, but I, I try very hard to have people who aren't just me, who are different than I am, and to push myself to, to get into their skin, talk the way they do, think about how they dress, where they live, what they'd eat, or not, in some cases. <laughs> yeah, that was the, um, the woman who started off being sort of the villain of, um, of Then Came You. I, one of the first things I knew about her was that all she ate was fish and steamed greens, and that she um, meets a guy and goes on a juice fast for like the week before she meets him and, and wine, you know, it was sort of like, okay, like I know how I eat, but I have to think of like how she eats and it was very different. Food offers clues to people. Yes, in front. She's making me our spokesperson. But do you have, was there ever, any, ever anything edited out of your books that just really ticked you off? Like Anything? something you thought oh, was God. important. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Greer. Um, edited out of my books that ticked me off, no. I'll, although I will say that I, I think my sense of humor is much grosser than my editors and my agents. And so like, I'll put things and they will write like, ooh, or disgusting, or I don't know what this means, or I had to look this up on Urban Dictionary and now I'm horrified. Um, but I, was, I, I wrote... Um, I wrote a short story called The Guy Not Taken, which is about a woman, and she's home alone. She's just had a baby. Um, her husband's working late. The baby's driving her crazy. She's sleep-deprived, and nothing fits, and she's out of her mind, and she has to go to a wedding, and she orders a present. She goes to WeddingChannel.com and logs in and orders the gift, and then, just for the hell of it, starts typing in the names of every guy she ever dated, because people do that, or at least I did, right? And so up pops her ex-boyfriend, and he's getting married, and she freaks out, because like she hadn't thought of this guy in years, but he'd kind of been the one for a little while, and oh my god, look at this. So then she remembers what his login probably was, his password. Like She logs in as what his email address had been, and then she remembers his password, and she gets into the list and starts messing with it. And the first thing that she does is register the couple for a Hitachi magic wand, right? Okay, a Hitachi magic wand, spoiler alert, is a vibrator, okay? So I write this story, I'm like, haha, this is so funny, and I send it to my agent, and my agent writes in the margins, what is a Hitachi magic wand? And I'm like, well, okay, she went to Catholic school, she went to Boston University, she went to Catholic University, like, she doesn't know, it's okay. And, and then I, so I leave it in there, and then I send it to my editor, who sends it back with a note in the margin, what is a Hitachi magic wand? 
At which point I realize I am a giant pervert. So it didn't get taken out, but I think I, I added a line about what it was so people would know. So like things don't, I mean, generally, I, I would say that, that people respect the integrity of my voice. I go all franzen on them. I'm like, you think they mess with him when he talks about Final vibrators? Cut, baby. Right, exactly. You know? Or like, you know, Thomas Harris, who writes the, the um, Hannibal okay, Lecter books, yeah. who, who turns them in and says, this is it. Like, do not, or Anne Rice does yeah. the same thing, like, refuses to be edited, don't touch a word of it. I, I like editors. I need all the help I can get. But they don't really mess with me so much. They, they let the gross stuff go. Anyone Oops. else want to know anything? Or we, should we end on that high buzzing note? Let's do one more question. One more question. Yes. We can do two more. Okay. Um, just another question about, like, a follow-up book. Um, Goodnight Nobody. Has there yes. ever been any thought about following up oh, with that good one? Oh, Goodnight Nobody. I, I would like to do a follow-up to that, but I can tell you that in Then Came You, which is coming out in July, you'll get to see Janie and Kate again. They have opened a detective agency. Yes, it's, it's awesome. Yes. And was there one more? Yes, uh, right back here. Go ahead. Last question. Um, I actually have a professional question for you. Sure. Um, we, you're talking about being a writer and how sometimes you go out and everybody's a writer, especially nowadays with the internet and blogging yes, and everything and else. And self-publishing. How did you get your break into it where it became like an actual... Well, uh-huh. That's a really good question. Um, I, I like telling this story because it's like I found my agent about 11 years ago. My first book came out 10 years ago this month. And I tell this story and people... It, this was all pre-internet, there was no email, there were no websites, and people look at me like, so, so you did all this after you closed your scrimshaw factory and, and before you took up whalebone corsetry? You know? But basically, I was, I was an English major in college. I took a lot of creative writing courses. I published some short stories in the 90s, and I worked for newspapers. I was a reporter at a small paper, and then a medium-sized paper, and then the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is the big daily newspaper in Philadelphia. And I, I wrote a novel. And I finished it. That's the first thing. If you're going to sell fiction, you need a finished product. You can't generally sell you know, an idea or a couple of chapters. You need to have done the thing. And then I got a book, A Writer's Guide to Literary Agents. And I went through it. And I made a list of agents. And I went through the acknowledgments of all the books I loved and saw who the agents were. See, because that's where reporting comes in. Exactly. That's what you have to do. That's what you have to do. And, and um, every decent writer will thank her agent in the acknowledgments. So they were all there. And then I sort of cross-referenced, like, OK, what agents are looking for new clients who represent writers that I, like me, and so I sent out 25 query letters, like stamps, envelopes, mailbox, the whole thing. Nowadays, this is all done through email. But I sent letters to agencies, and I said, here's who I am. Here's what I've written. Here's where I went to school. Here's the fancy people I took classes with. And I had a short story in 17. I had a short story in Red Book. I'm a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Would you like to see my novel? And I thought, stupidly, that okay, they're all going to want to see Who wouldn't want to see my novel? And I got 24 rejections. Just right down the line, we're not taking new fiction, not taking new clients, not taking women's fiction, not taking young women's fiction. Um, and eventually, I, I found an agent who was willing to read the book. And I wound up not working with her for a bunch of reasons. Um, one of them was she didn't think the first book should be called Good in Bed. She thought it should be called Big Girl. 
And I was just like, that's awful. Like, why don't we just call it like fat load and, and be done with it? <laughs> so, um, and then I, I, the way I found my agent was I talked to an assistant in her office and I'm like, I don't think it's going to work out with me and your boss, but do you know other agents with like free time and low standards because I need somebody? And she's like, well, I do know this one agent. She's just starting out. She doesn't have any big clients. I don't think she's ever sold fiction before, but I think she might really like your book. And so I FedExed it to her. We had FedEx back back then. Yes, I know. And um, she called me at my desk at the newspaper and she said, she has a little tiny voice. She said, I loved your book. It spoke to me. And I remember sitting there thinking, how? Like, how? But she became my agent. We worked on the manuscript together for like three months, like cutting and editing, moving things, condensing things, um, just getting it in really, really good shape. And then we went out, she took it to a couple of editors who she thought would be good fits. And I think we, she went out with the book on a Thursday. I think we had our first offer on a Monday. And then I got to come to New York and actually meet the editors who wanted to publish it. And what I later learned is called a beauty contest, where you get to actually go to their offices and they all like do their song and dance. And here's our marketing plan. And here's the ads that we do. And here's publicity. You know, and it was, um, it was fantastic. It was, it was like a, a fairy tale. And I, I was thinking today, actually, I was sitting, I, I flew in from LA, I was on a red eye last night, Spike Lee was on my plane, <laughs> that was kind of awesome, and I'm sitting in the hotel and I've got like my stack of pages that I'm editing and like my, my mug of tea and there's like this view of Manhattan and I'm like, I actually got to be the thing I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was six. Like I can remember our teachers asking like, what do you want to be? And everybody's like, you know, doctor, doctor, superhero, ballerina, and I said writer, and I got to do it, and I am happy every day because of that so that's a great way to end and i do want to also say i was telling jennifer earlier i have a friend who's a former school teacher in cleveland and when i tell you she has no media contacts in new york or la i don't even know that she's ever been to new york or la she's a stay-at-home mom she wrote a fantastic young adult um fantasy romance and she shopped it around to three agents and one of them signed her like a big yeah. time New York agent. I mean, so, there, there's people you know. always want good stories. Like people ask all the time, like, um, you know, oh my God, eBooks, oh my God, self-publishing, what's going to happen? The bottom line is that there's always a, a desire for great stories. So if you tell a great one, it's going to find its way into the world and it's going to find its way into readers' hands. So if you want to write, I think it's the best job in the world and I think you should go for it. And Thank there we go. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you so much again to Jennifer Weiner. The book is Fly Away Home. It's available now in the iBook store. If you haven't already purchased it, super easy to do. And don't forget, this conversation and many more available for free in the iTunes store as well. Go to Meet the Author. You can search for it. You'll see the little blue graphic, and you'll note the button says free over on the right. You can download all of those and this one very, very soon. We have events happening all the time, just about every single day. If you go to apple.com forward slash Soho, looks kind of like this. You'll be able to see all the upcoming events. And if you don't have time to go to the web, you can go ahead and download the free app. That's right. It's free as well. Go into the iTunes store, the app store this time, and download the Apple Store app. Pick out your favorite stores. You can find out what's going on events-wise, workshop-wise. Sign up. You can even check yourself in for your technical support appointment enunciation there so thank you so much guys for coming out thank you again to jennifer and thank you everyone we hope to see you next time you take care have a wonderful wonderful week